Thanks for joining us for our Sunday worship gathering. Today we begin a new series titled Forgotten God, and we're learning about the work of the Holy Spirit. Let's prepare our hearts for what God has for us today, and please give a warm welcome to our lead pastor, Bob Schwann. Great to see you, Journey. Always, always great to see you. Uh, I just want to say I've been really excited uh, about this series because I've just wanted to talk about the Holy Spirit. And I think that it's important for us to talk about this coming out of Vision Weekend. And part of the reason behind that is because for us to be the kind of church that I believe that God is calling us to be, it's going to be a movement of God's Spirit in and through the lives of His people. It's not going to be something that we're just going to work really hard and try really hard. It's got to be a movement of God's Spirit. And I want to just invite you, I don't normally do this, but if you are not able to see the message last week and you're a part of the Journey Church family, or maybe you're even just considering being a part of the Journey Church family, or, or maybe you're just even trying to, like, what is church supposed to be about at all? Maybe asking that question. I'd love for you to watch this message, not because I think it's the best sermon in the world, but I think it will help you understand who we are and what it is that we want to be about and why that even matters at all. I would love for you to take an opportunity to watch that. Kind of the, if I were to boil it down, we came to the place where we felt like what we want to be as a church is we want to be a church that is connected together, that our lives are connected together, that we're living as spiritual families with one another. But not just a family here and for ourselves, but a family that's on mission in the world. Because we talked about Jesus has a mission for us. And what we believe to be true is that part of what he did for us is that he poured out this radical love into our lives, into the lives of his children. And we believe that as we start to embrace that, as we start to understand that, metabolize that in our own lives, that we can't help but want to extend that into the lives of others. And that's the mission of Jesus in the world, that we would extend that out to others beyond ourselves. Because if we understand what it is that Jesus invites us to do, he wants us to be his disciples. And now simply put, a disciple is someone who just lives the kind of life that Jesus lived. That we would follow him so closely, that we would listen to him so closely, that our lives would start to mirror his life. A disciple is someone whose life becomes so much like Jesus that they start to take on his character, that our character becomes like his character. But it's not just about our character, it's about our ministry as well, that our ministry actually starts to look like the ministry of Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple. So that's all I'm asking you all to do is just, just be like Jesus. That's it. But it's actually more difficult than that. I'm not the one that's asking you to live like Jesus. It was actually Jesus was the one who invited us to live the kind of life that he lived. And if that wasn't like as crazy and impossible and all that, he actually raised the bar a little bit. And he said, I want you to actually take it up a notch. This is what he said to his closest followers. He says, very truly, I tell you, Whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. Here's the crazy, like we, we talk about being like Jesus, like man, that's good, that's impossible. But Jesus actually believes that you can do that. I just thought, I think it would just be so fun if we had t-shirts that we all wore that said Journey Church. 
doing greater things than Jesus. What do you think people would say when they saw us wearing a t-shirt like that? Who do they think they are? I actually think they would think that we are quite biblical because that's what Jesus is saying to us. We are to live the kind of life that he lived. What was he about? What did he do? His life was about proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, that God's kingdom was coming to this earth. And his, his life was about bringing healing and wholeness to people. There was physical healing in the lives of people. There was spiritual healing, emotional healing, relational healing, healing of all kinds. Jesus brought that to this earth. And he says, you bring that to this earth as well through me. And you just see in the life and ministry of Jesus that he was constantly pushing back the darkness. And when I say darkness, I'm talking about a real enemy that stands against God, that stands against his children. And Jesus, part of his ministry was taking back ground that that evil one had taken. And he says, live that kind of life. Now that's not difficult at all, is it? And I hope somewhere in your mind you're just thinking, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can pull that off. In fact, I've been trying to do that for so long and I am so frustrated. I don't even know if I'm gaining ground. Sometimes I just think I'm continually failing. I need help. That's why we're having this series is because we're all in that place. We're all frustrated with where we're at in our Christian experience because there's more that God wants for us. Here's what I want you to grab a hold of today. The Christian life, the life I'm talking about, that kind of life that Jesus lived, it's not difficult. That life's not difficult. It's actually impossible. And the only way for us to live the kind of life that Jesus lived is if he lives his life through us in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why we're doing this series, because the Christian life isn't difficult, it's impossible. And unless God lives his life through us in the power of the Holy Spirit, we don't have a shot. This was interesting. When Jesus was here on earth and talking to his disciples, he told them, they said, it's going to be better for me to go away. He said, because then I will send the Holy Spirit to you. And they, they didn't believe him. And I, I don't know if I would believe him either if I were in their shoes. Like, wouldn't that be amazing if like 24-7 Jesus was right beside you, teaching you, training you, encouraging you, challenging you? You'd think, wouldn't you have a better shot at getting it right, of living this supernatural life? But Jesus says, that's not true. It's gonna be better for me if I go because if I go, I'm gonna send one to you. And this is what he said in John chapter 16, verse 7, he says, But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Because unless I go away, the advocate, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Like I said, the disciples didn't buy it. They're like, no way. We need you here, Jesus. But he says, it's better if I should go. But here's what happened. Their lives were transformed because the Holy Spirit came to them. Let's just think, just if we can for a second, about the life of the apostle Peter. I love Peter, one of my greatest, favorite characters in the Bible. I mean, he walked so closely with Jesus for three years. 
And remember, this was the guy, not only walked with Jesus, he walked on water. This guy was a doer. This guy was a man of action. But we get to the very end of the life of Jesus. And Jesus makes a prediction to his disciples. He said, all of you are going to walk away. All of you are going to fall away. What does Peter say to Jesus? He stands up in Jesus and rebukes him. And if you're going to rebuke Jesus, you better know what you're talking about. He says, even if all these guys fall away, you can count on me. I'm going to be there. And Jesus said, no, Peter, before the rooster even crows, you're going to deny that you know me three times. And he says, no way, absolutely not. I am ready to die for you, Jesus. I'm willing to give my life. And I just wonder, was Peter sincere? If he could just be in his mind, was he sincere when he said that? Or, or was he just blowing smoke at Jesus? Was he sincere? I am 100% convinced that Peter was absolutely sincere in what he said. Why do I think that? Because when they came after that to arrest Jesus, what does Peter do? He pulls out his sword and he's ready to go to battle. In fact, he cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. Peter was willing to go to battle. He was sincere. He had all the oomph that he needed. But we just play this out just a little bit. Jesus is arrested, taken on trial, and all of a sudden you see Peter, he's just starting to fade into the background. And they talk about this scene at the end of Matthew, at the end of the Gospels, where they're sitting around by a fire. And this guy that was willing to pull a sword, a little girl, a little girl walks up to him and says, hey, weren't you with him? No, not me. I don't even know what you're talking about. Totally blows her off. And then again, it says another girl comes up to him and says, surely you were with him. Absolutely not. And then an actual man comes up to him and says, but your voice, your dialect, it's a Galilean. Surely you were with him. Not me. I don't even know who you're talking about. Get away from me. And the rooster crows. Peter denies him three times. I don't blame Peter. I get what I think was going on in Peter's head. I know what it was like when I was growing up and you have a friend that's kind of getting into trouble and it's like, yeah, I got to go home. You know, it's time for me to get out of here. It's like, we want to distance ourselves from trouble, don't we? That's exactly what was going on in the life of Peter. I want to distance myself from this person that was so bold saying, Jesus, I will die with you. Now a little girl comes up to him and he acts like he doesn't even know who Jesus is. Think about that picture of Peter. But now I want you to fast forward a handful of weeks, six or seven weeks, give or take. There's this picture of Jesus, or picture of Peter at the beginning of the book of Acts. And here's what's going on. Peter is standing in that same town in front of those same people that a few weeks before had taken his rabbi and hung him on a cross. And in front of those same people, this is what Peter is doing. He is boldly proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God to everyone there that will listen. And remind you, it is the same people that just killed Jesus. Peter knows that 
They don't care. In a blink, they would take his life just like they took Jesus' life. But there's this incredible boldness in his life. I've got to ask the question, what happened? What happened to Peter in that six or seven weeks? Now, there's a handful of events that we know about, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Big events. And then Jesus was with Peter, teaching the disciples during that time. I'm just thinking that must have been one whale of a sermon series during that week because it really got Peter excited. I don't think it was the sermon series because if there was something new that Jesus had taught them during that time, I think the scriptures would say, this is what's really gonna fire people up to be about my kingdom. But the scriptures don't even tell us what Jesus taught during that time. What happened in Peter's life? Acts Chapter two happened. That's what happened. Jesus told his disciples, he said, wait here in the city and you will be clothed with power from on high. In Acts chapter one, verse eight, it says, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And as a result of that, you're gonna be my witnesses in Jerusalem, here in Judea and Samaria, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. You are going to receive power power. That's what happened to Peter. That's what transformed him from someone that when a little girl came up to him and said, do you even know who Jesus is? Totally backing away to someone who boldly proclaiming the good news of the kingdom in front of the people that just had killed Jesus a few weeks before. Power came on his life and he was transformed. He started to become transformed from the inside out. The presence of God was upon him and it was because of Acts chapter two, Pentecost. God pours out his spirit and the church was launched. I just get this picture sometimes in my mind that this big rock from heaven hit the still pond of history and all of a sudden there's just these ripple effects that started to happen as God's presence, his divine presence enters the hearts and the lives of every believer that had bowed their knee to him, they were transformed because of what happened. Power came upon them. But here's the question that keeps me up at night as I think about my own life, as I think about our church. Do we have, friends, do we have the same level of expectation that the Holy Spirit coming into our lives would bring that same kind of transformation in us that would lead to this incredible boldness that would cause the kingdom to grow around us? Do we have that same expectation? And my fear is, is that we have lowered our expectation of what God can do in our lives. We've lowered our expectation of even what God wants to do in our lives. A.W. Tozer, he points out this problem in the church today and says it just very plainly as Tozer is known to do. But this is what he said. He said, we may as well face it. The whole level of spirituality among us is low. We have measured ourselves by ourselves until the incentive to seek higher plateaus in the things of the spirit is all but gone. We have imitated the world, sought popular favor, manufactured delights to substitute for the joy of the Lord and produced a cheap and synthetic power to substitute for the power of the Holy Ghost. 
You know, I, I, I listened to what Tozer wrote there and I can't argue it. I think he's right. Friends, I think that we've taken the scripture and instead of holding it up here as this picture of what God wants to do in and through our lives, we've somehow decided that we're gonna try to lower the scriptures to the level of our experience. We've measured ourselves by ourselves, not by scripture. But friends, as we think about this series, as we think about what God is calling us to do, be and do as a church, this is what I'm asking us to do. Can we just hold the scriptures up for what they say is true about who we are and what it is that God has called us to do? And could we, by faith, could we trust God? Would you raise our experience to the level of the scriptures? God, would you do that? Friends, we're not gonna do that apart from a movement of God through his Holy Spirit in and through us. It's not gonna happen apart from that. We need to raise our experience to the level of the Bible because you're not gonna convince me, friends, you're not gonna convince me that this Christian life is not intended to be a supernatural life. It's got to be, or the scriptures make no sense at all. And friends, we've got to raise that level in our life. Trust God for something more. Otherwise, we're just doing church. But I think God has something more for us as a church. Something more that he wants to see in us and more that he wants to do through us. And it's not gonna happen apart from a move of the Holy Spirit. But how does the Holy Spirit bring about this supernatural life in us? That's what this series is gonna be about. How do we seek and surrender our lives to the work of the Holy Spirit? As we move ahead, I'm gonna just read a section of John chapter 14. And I'm gonna read the whole thing without a lot of comment because I just want you in your minds, I want you to catch the context and the flow of what Jesus was promising to his disciples as he poured out, as he talked about sending the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14, starting in verse 15, this is what the scripture says. If you love me, keep my commands and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help, to help you and to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. That's the promise, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He, the third person of the Trinity, the personal, divine resident of the believer's heart. Jesus is promising, I'm gonna pour that out. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, don't want to be confused with him, said, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. 
anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to my Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. That was the promise of Jesus. I'm gonna send one to you. And he says, I'm gonna send an advocate. I wanna remind you what it said back in verse 16. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The word that is translated there, that we translate into English, we translate advocate. But it's interesting, if you look at lots of translation of John's gospel here, there's lots of different words that it uses there. Sometimes you see the word comforter. Sometimes you see the word counselor. Sometimes you see the word helper. But the NIV that I'm reading from today, it uses the word advocate. And oftentimes when you see, scholars will say, when we get to that place where there's lots of different words that translators are using to try to capture the word that it's translating is because the word that it's translating is too rich and too full to be captured by just one simple English word. The word that John's using here is a word called parakletos. And it's a combination of two Greek words. One para, meaning to come alongside, like a preposition, to come alongside, not ahead, not behind, but one that comes beside. And the kletos piece of that, parakletos, is that it comes from the word kaleo, which means to call out. One who calls out alongside us. And the reason that the NIV translates this word advocate is because there's a way that this word was used that there's a legal sense to what John is talking about here. An advocate is one like a lawyer, one who stands beside you and pleads your case, calls out on your behalf, an advocate. That's why when they translate it sometimes counselor, it's not even talking about the kind of counselor that we often think of like, like leather couch and laying there and giving you advice on life. I mean, the spirit can do that. But it's talking about a legal counsel, a legal counselor that will stand in your defense. And what Jesus is saying here is he said, I'm going to send you another advocate that's going to come alongside you. Well, here's the question that I have. If the Holy Spirit is another advocate, who's our first advocate? Who's the first advocate? It's Jesus himself. He and he alone is our first advocate advocate. In fact, when John wrote, not the gospel of John, but when he wrote 1 John, he uses this exact same word to describe Jesus as standing as our advocate before the Father. This is what he says in 1 John chapter 2 verse 1. He says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, anybody around here do some of that every once in a while, whether we want to or not, sometimes we do. But it says, but, even, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
Jesus is our first advocate. Meaning that he stands before the Father and he pleads our case for us. How is it that Jesus is pleading our case? Is Jesus standing there saying, come on, would you just cut them a little slack? They're trying really hard. I know they're messing up, but would you please just give them a break? That's not the case that Jesus is making before the Father. As he stands as our advocate, this is the case that he's making. He's saying, yes, they are sinners. Yes, they are guilty. But here's what I'm gonna do. I am gonna stand in their place because I have no sin. And because I have no sin, I can stand in their place for them. And God, your Father, your law says that the payment for sin is death. The payment for sin is shed blood. I am gonna pay for them. I'm gonna pay with my life. I'm gonna pay with my blood. And my righteousness, my perfect life, I'm giving it to them. I'm taking their sin upon me and they're getting my righteousness. And the scripture's telling us that Jesus over and over, that's where he stands for you right now. If you're a follower of Jesus, he is standing as your first advocate. And he's saying, God, you can't punish them because you've punished me. And it's unfair for you to punish two people for one crime. And I took their punishment. God did that for us. Jesus did that for us. He stands in our place as our advocate. But he didn't stop there. He said, I'm gonna send you another advocate. This Holy Spirit, his spirit that he's sending out, this is another advocate. This is what the scripture says. Again, I read it in verse 26, but I wanna read it to you again. It says, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, Here's what he's gonna do. He says, I will teach you all things and I will remind you of everything that I have said to you. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. He's gonna teach us all things. You know what else he's gonna do? He's gonna remind us of everything that Jesus taught, everything that Jesus is. The second advocate, his role is to point, continually point to the first advocate. Remember him, remember he stands before you, between you and God. He is the first advocate and I'm gonna remind you over and over what it is that he's done for you. That's the role of the Holy Spirit, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit. And as I was thinking about this, you almost get like kind of a courtroom scene in your mind. That there's Jesus that's pleading our case before the judge. And you've got this Holy Spirit standing beside us, pointing to Jesus, reminding us of what it is that he's done for us. But here's the question that I have. Who's the prosecutor? If Jesus is standing before the Father, who's trying to bring prosecution against us? Who's trying to bring accusation against us? Who's playing that role in this drama? The scripture makes it really clear who the accuser is. It is Satan himself. It is the enemy of your soul. He's an enemy of God, but he's an enemy of you. And this is how the scripture, they actually call him the accuser. In Revelation 12, 10, this is what the scripture says. It says, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. 
Now in Revelation, we're talking about a time when Satan's reign and his ability to do this is gonna be over. It's gonna come to an end. But right now, what is he doing? He is accusing day and night. And some of you, you know exactly what I'm talking about because you hear his voice. You hear those accusations. He is brutal. He is relentless. And you know what? He knows your weaknesses. He knows the things to say to you, to cause you to cave in, to cause you to forget that you have an advocate before the Father. He brings accusation. You know what he says. You're never gonna amount to anything. Look at what you've done. Look at your past. How can you even walk into a group of people that call themselves Christ followers in light of where your life has been? Who do you think you are? Nobody cares about you. You're always gonna be alone. You're never gonna be successful. You're never gonna amount to anything. Day and night, the accuser stands before us, bringing accusation against us. And he knows exactly what to say to each one of us. And it's a different message to all of us. He knows where the chinks in your armor are and he goes after it. Friends, he goes after it in your life. A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to be around another Christian leader uh, that ministers in another part of the country. Man, I really liked this guy. It was just so fun to be around him, to hear him talk about ministry. Uh, I just thought, man, he is one of the more gifted people that I know. I started to think about how insightful and discerning he was just being around us for a short period of time. He was incredibly articulate in terms of how he was able to express his ideas. There was just an, a clarity about him that was, that was just amazing to me. And there was just kind of the way that he carried himself with this incredible confidence. And I just thought, man, I am impressed by this guy. But here's where that went to me. It didn't stop there. It wasn't like, I'm just gonna be excited about who it is that God made this guy. Suddenly there was just like all this comparison that started to happen in me. And I started to think about, wow, look at all that gifting that he has. A lot of those gifts I don't have. And then in me, I just thought, well, if I, if I don't have those gifts, well, maybe, maybe people would want him to be around here and not me. And suddenly there's all this like fear and insecurity that started to, to well up in me. And I could just see in my own spirit that there was this like striving. Well, it's like, well, I'm gonna get better. I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get good at this. I'm gonna get good at this. I'm gonna get good at this. There was just this striving that was going on, but it was being driven, not by an invitation from God to grow my capacity. It was driven by the accuser. You are not enough. And as I sat there one morning, with the Lord and just processing this with him because I started to see these anxious thoughts and this fear and insecurity. And I know that, that that's not the voice of God in our lives. It wasn't the, I'm like, what is going on here? And the Lord in his kindness and grace, the other advocate, the spirit, he just whispered to me, Bob, you are enough. You are enough. I can't even tell you what it felt like to just hear him say that. Just that peace that he talked about just washed over me. And it's like, you're right. I'm enough. Not because I've got it all together. Not because I have all the gifts. Because I have an advocate that stands before the Father day and night telling me, you are enough. Not because of what you've done, but because of what I've done. And that spirit that lives within me, he's going to continually 
point me to that, that truth, so that I know when it's the accuser and I know when it's him. That's what God wants for us. I love how Paul describes the voice of the advocate on our behalf, how he teaches and reminds us. In Romans chapter eight, this is how Paul describes the work of the advocate. Starting in verse 14, he says, for those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. Adoption to sonship. We don't have to be afraid again. We are a son. Paul continues, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Abba could be easily translated Daddy. The sense of intimacy, closeness with God. We are his child. The Spirit himself testifies. This advocate that is standing beside us, what is the testimony that he is shouting day and night on our behalf? The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. He reminds us over and over, we belong to another. You are a child You are a son or a daughter of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That is who you are. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Your advocate, the Holy Spirit, one of his primary roles is to shout to you over and over and over again and remind you who you are. You are a child of the king. And whose you are. This isn't just any king. This is the king of kings. He is gonna shout over and over. This is who you are and this is whose you are. He's gonna counter the voice of the accuser. The accuser's voice doesn't count. But here's what's gonna happen. I believe that as we start to understand that, as we start to internalize that in our life, metabolize that truth, that reality, that we're no longer listening to those vo- that voice of the accuser, but we're starting to listen to the voice of the advocate. Here's what's gonna happen. It's gonna transform our life. And it's gonna cause us to want to be more with the King of Kings and to do more with the King of Kings, be a part of what he's doing in the world. That's what Jesus was saying over and over in John 14. I don't have time to reread it, but if you go back over and over, if you remember during when I read it, he talks about how our love for him is gonna lead to our obedience for him. It's this understanding of how much we've been loved by him, internalizing that in our life in a way that causes us to say, I can't help but wanna extend that love to people around me in bold and courageous ways because I am the son and the daughter of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's our identity as a son and a daughter that leads us to obedience. It's not our obedience that leads us to our identity as a son or a daughter. We've got to internalize the incredible love of God. Because our obedience, friends, it's a byproduct of one thing. It's a byproduct of being with Jesus. That we're just with him. We understand what the advocate has done for us. We learn to hear his voice. 
We learn what it's like to experience him as we walk through our life. You don't learn to become like Jesus simply by trying to be like Jesus. We become like Jesus by being with Jesus. Friends, it's simply about being with Jesus. And this is what the Spirit wants to do. And this is why I think sometimes theologically there's a reason why the Holy Spirit can get kind of lost in the shuffle sometimes. It's because one of his major roles is not to point to himself. His role is to point to another, to point to Jesus. That's why sometimes he can be the forgotten God. But he doesn't have an inferiority complex because he knows what it is that he's trying to do. He's trying to point us to Jesus, to remind us who we are and whose we are. When I think about myself, when I think about our church, I just want to, I just wonder, do we want more? Do we want more of who God is in our life? Do we want more of what the Holy Spirit can do in our life? And I'm going to stand up in front of you unashamed and say, yes, for me, I want more. I want more. I want to read a chunk of scripture from Luke chapter 11. This is after Jesus had taught his disciples about prayer and the Lord's prayer. And he talked about this idea of wanting more. This is what he says, starting in verse nine. He says, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give what? The Holy Spirit to those who ask them. Here's what stopped me in my tracks when I read that. Jesus is making an assumption here about this whole idea of asking, seeking, knocking, banging on the door of heaven. He's making an assumption here, and I'm not sure it's a good one. He's making an assumption that what we're gonna want most in life is more of him, more of his presence, more of his power in our life. I think it's convicting to me maybe when I look at what are the things that I ask God for over and over and over in life? Is it more of him? Is it more of his power? Or is it like, God, would you change my circumstances? Would you provide this? Would you do this? What is it that I really, really want? And friends, when I think about what it's gonna take for my life to be transformed, what it's gonna take for your life to be transformed, what it's gonna take for our church to be transformed in a way that actually changes the valley around us, it's going to be, take a lot of people that want more of him, that aren't satisfied with where they are today, that realize that the Christian life, it's got to be a supernatural life, but that there's no way, no way in heaven or on earth that we're going to be able to live that supernatural life apart from Christ living his life through us in the power of the Holy Spirit. This Christian life, it's not difficult, it's impossible. But friends, that's what the church was intended to be. It was never intended to be this top-down thing led by people, some kind of an institution. It was always a bottom-up movement 
of people who were just like Jesus said there that hungered for more. They kept on asking, kept on seeking, kept on knocking. God, I want more of you in my life. Journey, that's who we need to be. That's who I need to be. That's who God is inviting us to be together. As you set your things aside, I just want to invite you to start a conversation with God. And I hope this conversation continues not only today, but through this series and quite honestly, for the rest of your life. But I want you to ask God, what does more look like for me? God, what would you be saying to me? God, what does more look like to me? And in light of what it is that God might say to you about what more looks like, ask God this second question. What do you want me to do about it? How do you want me to respond in faith to what it is that you're saying to me today? stuff of this earth but God we want more of you we want more of your power in our life we want more of your presence in our life we want to experience you in deeper and greater ways God we just want to say thank you that you've provided a way for that to happen through the power of your Holy Spirit your personal divine presence in our lives in our hearts God would you teach us in the coming days, in the coming weeks, and for the rest of our lives, what does it look like for us to grow in our dependence upon you? Seeking you for higher things, not for our glory, Lord, but for your glory and for the sake of your kingdom. God, we wanna be about the stuff of your kingdom while we're here on earth. Help us know how to bring it to this valley in powerful ways. God, we're gonna trust you to do that. I'm gonna trust you in my life. I'm just going to keep seeking you, not only for me, but for my friends that are here. We want more of you, God. And Jesus, it's in your powerful and risen name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.